All right, you can turn your Bibles to Philippians. Uh, let me just make a, a brief comment, and that would be uh, the value of three people, right? Significant works of God usually start one person at a time. And as we can be gripped by the person and work of our wonderful Savior, uh, we don't want to underestimate what God might do through these three men in our assembly. It's great to hear about them and hear how God was moving. And I'm thankful for Pastor Paul and his leadership, Pastor Campbell and his leadership, and taking them there. I, I did hear, though, that he hurt his shoulder uh, in a wrestling match that he lost, uh, actually. Uh, I think one of the junior hires from the other group, uh, maybe. Uh, well, you know, I was in Australia, though. What do I know? You might want to ask him about that. Um, but uh, I'm glad for his ministry and thankful uh, for him. As we start into Philippians, let me just say a few things. Uh, first of all, I, w- I will be preaching, I anticipate preaching from the ESV, the English Standard Version. I've been preaching from it for a few years now and uh, do appreciate it. And so if you're wondering, ever have any questions, that's the book, or the, the Bible I plan to use uh, throughout the series. And I also wanted to let you know that there is a handout in the bulletin. And so if you like to take notes, if you'd like to follow in that way, uh, you can do that as well. My plan would be to cover the first page, pages two through four, just bonus material uh, for you and your devotions this week or your study of the scriptures. I might refer to them just a little bit in the introduction or the overview of the book that I plan on doing with you here today. Uh, Today we're going to engage in something that might not be your typical Sunday morning sermon uh, in that my preference would be normally to take a text of scripture and walk through it, open it up say what it means, then think about how it applies to our lives and sit down and let God uh, do a a profound work in our hearts. Uh, Today, though, I want to take a moment to do a a brief overview of the book. And as we um, think through Philippians, my my goal or my plan for you today would be for you to have your Bible open and we're going to be dipping into certain places in the book. We'll be reading through them and and I want to focus primarily on the, the theme and the purpose of the book with you here today. Now, as we come to Philippians, uh, one of the things we need to know is that Philippians is a very well-known book. If you've known Christ for any length of time, the odds are you probably have some of this book memorized. I took the time to write out some of my favorite verses here uh, in, the, in Philippians. In, in the very beginning of chapter 1, in verse 6, Paul says... He who has begun a good work in you will complete it or will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Uh, How many of God's children have taken comfort from that passage which reassures us that God's the one who's going to to complete the work in our lives? Uh, But uh, perhaps also uh, Philippians 1 verse 21 is a verse that God has used in your life from time to time. Paul says, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That short little powerful verse is a a great testimony. And when we get to that place in the book, I'm sure God will use that in our lives to challenge us. Many of us go to Philippians 2 and verse uh, verse 5 and say that one of the greatest verses in the book is where Paul calls the Philippian assembly to have the same mind of Jesus. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, and which was, by the way, just sung for us before. One of my favorite verses in the book, I've got about seven life verses. Uh, One of my favorite verses is Philippians 3.10, that I may know him 
They may know him where Paul is describing his approach as a missionary church planter. He counts everything else but loss, right? So that he might know Christ. He might be able to experience the, a fellowship in his sufferings. And he might know the power of the resurrection. It's a great passage. But there are others in the book as well. Perhaps you've had a bad day or a bad year or decade And you think of Philippians 4.4, and it keeps you on track. Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say rejoice. Or Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. If you've been a Christian for any length of time, you you might have something like 25% of this book memorized. Good portion of the book. But but then I want to ask you, well, what do we actually know about it, though? And I want to suggest that's been my experience in many of the churches I've been a part of, is we know bits and pieces of the book, but perhaps we haven't given much thought or attention to Paul's driving purposes in the book, or his full intent with all of these bits and pieces and how they fit together. And so what I would like to do is focus primarily on that this morning. Now, this is not going to be a long, formal study where I like tell you everything I know about the Apostle Paul and about you know, the, the city of Philippi and the recipients of this book. I'll make a few brief comments on that, but I'm going to spend the most of our time thinking about what were Paul's primary purposes in writing Philippians. And I hope it opens up the book to you. And I hope it will attract you and perhaps even compel you to come back this evening to hear as we go into Philippians 1 and verse 1. And so as we get into the book, some initial observations. First, about the author Paul. In the first chapter of the book, we find out that the authors, the authors are identified. You look at Philippians 1 and verse 1, just see the very first words there, Paul and Timothy. Paul and Timothy write this book, but what we learn about Paul is that Paul not only wrote Philippians, he also planted the church at Philippi. You could read all about this in your Bible in Acts 16 this week. It'd be a good review for many of those of you who've, who've known of Philippians for some time or know of Paul's interaction, or perhaps you've never done that before. Acts chapter 16 would be a good place for you to study. And what we learned there, among other things, is that God gave Paul a Macedonian vision. You remember this? He gave him a vision that compelled Paul to leave where he was in Galatia and to go over into Macedonia to minister the gospel there. And so Paul, uh, Paul decides to obey God. And one of the first fruits of his ministry in the province of Macedonia was in the city of Philippi. And if you read in Acts 16, you'll see what happens is that Paul goes to Philippi, but then he's arrested and beaten illegally and thrown into prison. And so you might ask, I'm sure Paul may have thought of asking, God, why did you give me a vision to send me to a city where I'm going to be beaten? And I think that the answer to that question is found in Acts 16. When you find out in that chapter that as Paul goes into Philippi and begins ministering, certain people come to know Christ as their Savior. So there was a demon-possessed girl that Paul heals. 
she's converted. There's a woman by the name of Lydia, a seller of purple, a wealthy woman who's converted, who comes to know Christ as her Savior. And then, as a result of his imprisonment and his beating, there's a Philippian jailer and his entire household who come to know Christ. And so in this church plant visit, what we learn is God sent Paul to Philippi and to Macedonia and asked him to endure the suffering and the trial because of the value or the worth of souls for Jesus Christ. So Paul plants this church. That's a little bit about Paul. That's in about A.D. 50 or 51. But then he also writes this letter about 10 years later. And if you want to learn about Paul's writing, there's time when he wrote the letter to the Philippians, you could read the last chapter of Acts. Okay, so you read Acts 16 this week to learn about when he planted the church. You read Acts 28 to learn about the time where Paul was in prison in Rome and writes this letter. So as we read through Philippians, as we study it for the next several weeks, we need to remember that Paul's in prison. Now, he is in his own house imprisonment. This is his first Roman imprisonment, and he is chained to prison guards. Okay, so as we study this, we'll find out. And if you want to read Acts 28 this week, you can learn about Paul and learn how difficult it was for him to not only minister to other people, but to do so while he has to care for himself. And that leads us to some observations about the church, the church at Philippi. Well, there are all kinds of ways I could describe them, and I will. I've got, like, as long as I want, right? Um, The next several months, uh, not today, but the next several months (laughs) to, to work through this with you. Uh, But one of the ways I would describe them is that the church at Philippi was a poor but a giving church. Look at the last chapter of this book. Go to Philippians 4. They were a poor but a giving church. And the scriptures demonstrate that this church gave to Paul on at least four different occasions. In Philippians 4, in verse 14, we can see the first occasion. He says... Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. So the first occasion where they gave to Paul is I believe that they gave to support Paul and his ministry way back at the church plant visit when he's there in Philippi. This is a church that gives exceedingly. But if you keep reading, the second occurrence is right after this. Look at verse 16. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Uh, Just after Paul leaves Philippi, he goes to the Thessalonica, and there they send gifts, financial gifts to him as well, to support him in his gospel ministry. Uh, We don't have the time to to go there, but you you could write this reference down in your Bible. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8... Paul talks about a third time the church at Philippi was willing to give to him. And in particular, he was generating a gift for the the poor churches of Jerusalem. And he says that the churches of Macedonia have given out of their poverty. They've given abundantly out of their poverty. I think there he's describing perhaps churches like Philippi and Thessalonica. 
This church, although they were a poor church themselves, saw a need in the Jerusalem church. Perhaps there's some sort of drought there. And they give abundantly out of their poverty. Matter of fact, they give so extravagantly, it puts them in a difficult financial position as a church. And it really limits their ability to give any more. But the fourth occurrence of their giving, you're still in Philippians 4. Look down in your Bible, verse 17. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek fruit, the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. A fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. Now, while under house imprisonment in Rome, while Paul's trying to take care of himself, the church of Philippi sends a gift with an elderly traveler by the name of Epaphroditus. And he brings this financial gift to Paul and he rejoices in the fact that there's such a giving church. But other than this thanksgiving for the gift that Paul received from the Thessalonians, what are the other main reasons for why Paul wrote? Or what specific purposes does he have in writing this letter? And so I want to look at some of the themes. Now, uh, perhaps you've heard preaching on Philippians before. Uh, One of the themes that is often preached and proclaimed, and some of you have probably done it, and so if you've done it, I want to say it's a good theme, I like it, okay? I'm not going to agree full-heartedly, but it's good. One of the themes you'll hear with Philippians uh, when it's proclaimed is that the whole book is about joy or rejoicing. Uh, As a matter of fact, there's a popular devotional in some circles, and the title of it is Be Joyful, Study of Philippians. There's a Sunday school series, a curriculum that that goes around our circles from time to time in RBP, and the title of it, I looked it up, was The Joyful Life. Now, I think this theme is a good one. The word joy or rejoicing is found all throughout Philippians. In noun or verb form, the words joy or rejoice are found 16 times in the book. That means about four times per chapter as you're reading through this short epistle, you will see things about rejoicing or joy. And for Paul in Philippians, what we learn is that joy has to do fundamentally with one's relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's not dependent upon physical circumstances. So you can be in prison in Rome and still be filled with joy because God is in control. Although Paul will say in this epistle that there is the possibility of him experiencing overwhelming sorrow at the thought of losing Epaphroditus. But joy is a good theme. I think it's something that uh, perhaps should be emphasized in the book. It is here frequently. And in a moment, I'll show you how I'm going to maybe adopt some of the strengths of joy. The other theme you will hear preached or taught when people work through Philippians is the idea of gospel. The word gospel is used as well often in the book. Uh, It's used nine times in the book, six times in the first chapter. Okay, but that would be one of my critiques in it, uh, of it. That it's found early in the book, but then after you get beyond that, gospel doesn't occur very much. But in the first, few, in the first chapter, Paul describes the partnership or the fellowship that they have in the gospel. He explains that 
uh, we should be concerned for the advance or the furtherance of the gospel in verses 12 through 18. And later on in the chapter, he'll talk about what it looks like to live worthy of the gospel. So I do think it's a significant theme, but perhaps there are betters. Better. Uh, the third possibility that many preachers proclaim is that Paul writes this letter because there's a threat of disunity in the churches of Philippi. And there are many sections in the book. If you look down in chapter 1, verses 27 through 30, for instance, you'll see that at the end of that chapter, Paul talks about standing firm together. And he'll use the language of striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. That leads him to the beginning of chapter 2. If you just keep going through the chapter division... In chapter 2, he'll, he'll talk in verse 2 about having the same mind and the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Paul is concerned that the church of Philippi remain united. As a matter of fact, later in the book, in chapter 4 and verse 2, just flip over there for a second, you've got Philippians. We're going to kind of wear it, wear it out back and forth here, one page. Philippians 4 and verse 2, he says, I entreat Yodia and I entreat Syndicate to agree in the Lord, to have the same mind. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So later on in the book, Paul also has something to say about disunity. He says, you really need to help these women, Yodias and Syntyche, that they can agree that they would get along. Paul's concerned for this. And so this is a major theme. But I want to suggest something is even more predominant than these three great themes. This is perhaps one that maybe you haven't heard very much, but what I'd like to do is make a case for this by going through Philippians. So the rest of our time is, like, really cool. We'll go through Philippians, and we'll see this theme over and over again. I think you'll really enjoy it. So um, the, the case I want to make is that this book was primarily written by Paul for the Philippian believers, and for us by extension, to think about our mindset or the way we think about life. So as you write that down, let me just give you a little bit of information here. The words to think are repeated often in Philippians. The words to think are found ten times in Philippians. Now, that's abnormal for Paul. I did a quick study in the last few weeks. I noticed that the words to think are found once in 1 Corinthians. Okay? 1 Corinthians is 16 chapters. This is four. Once in 1 Corinthians... Ten times in Philippians. It's once in 2 Corinthians. It's once in Galatians. It's once in Colossians. But ten times here. Do you think Paul is concerned with the way the Philippians think? Not only that, but another thing you'll find as you study this book. Is you'll find synonyms for the word thinking all throughout Philippians. So that there are, in my count... 15 other occurrences of words that could be translated consider, or think, or reckon. So that when you add all of those up, when you're reading through Philippians this week, you'll find the concept of thinking in six, six plus times per chapter. 
with this theme, Paul, consi- Paul calls believers to consider not only how they think, but their whole mindset or disposition regarding life. And so, in other words here, Paul's encouraging the Philippians to think the right way about life. Now, I want to emphasize that with you this morning by pulling out some very important passages in the book and by showing you how they relate to our mindset. One way that Paul emphasizes this idea is by talking about his opponents. You have a handout, and on your handout, pages 2 through 4 have to do with the three major passages where Paul deals with his opponents, probably in the city of Rome where he is preaching the gospel from his own house imprisonment. In the first one of these on page 2, you can see that in chapter 1, verses 12 through 18, Paul talks about some people who are falsely motivated believers. They're falsely motivated preachers. Look down in your Bible at Philippians 1 and verse 12. Paul says, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. So far, so good. Verse 14, Philippians 1, 14. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Again, we would all say, amen. It's awesome. But look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Others do it from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. But notice what he says next. The former, those who are preaching Jesus from envy and rivalry, the former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but what? Got an ESV and you're following along. But thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice, yea, and I will rejoice. So what Paul does at the beginning of the book is he says to the Philippians, there's a whole group of new preachers in Rome who are preaching Christ out of envy and strife, and their whole goal is to make life more difficult for me as an apostle. Old preacher a hundred years ago said they, they wanted to tighten the shackles on the wrists of the apostle Paul. Can you imagine that? That some people would increase their evangelistic zeal just to make the torture, the persecution more severe in the guy in prison? What's Paul's attitude about them? Paul's attitude is this. I know that's the case, but I will rejoice because Jesus is being proclaimed. How will the Philippians be able to deal with falsely motivated believers who want to hurt Paul? They'll only be able to do this if they have the right mindset. These preachers don't have it. They're preaching Jesus for the wrong reasons. They're thinking they can add affliction to Paul. 
But Paul demonstrates a proper attitude about suffering and affliction. If Jesus can be proclaimed in my suffering and affliction, I will have joy. But he will also talk about some opponents at the beginning of chapter 3. Notice in your handout, the very next page, page 3, the, the title is The Identity of the Dogs. And you could read through that a little bit in my description underneath the line there. But let's look at the text, Philippians 3, verse 1. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me, and it's safe for you. Then notice what he says. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evil workers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we, Paul and the believers, we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God, and we boast or glory in Christ Jesus, and we put no confidence in the flesh. The second group of opponents that Paul faces, I think, are Jewish false teachers who were boasting in external acts of the Mosaic law. They were boasting in circumcision. They're putting confidence in the flesh. You see, they've got the whole, they've got the wrong approach to life. But Paul says, that's not us. We are the true circumcision. We worship God in spirit and truth. We put no confidence in human flesh. And we boast in Jesus Christ. What's wrong with the false teachers at the beginning of chapter 3? They don't have the right mindset. Got the whole wrong approach to life. This leads me to a quick discussion at the end of chapter 3, and this is the last page of your handouts. Again, I'm not going to do much with it. You can study it this week in your devotions. At the end of chapter 3, you come to a little controversial group of opponents. They've got, it, they've got things messed up too. Surprise. If you look in your Bibles at Philippians 3 and verse 17, notice how Paul describes these. He says, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So follow me in my approach. But verse 18, for many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. And notice how he describes them. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their own belly, their own appetites. And their glory is their shame with minds set on earthly things. I believe these opponents here, uh, and there's some controversy here, and I'll make the case, you know, in like three months when we're finally there, or two months, I'll make the case, I think that these are the victims of the false teachers from earlier, that, that they're the victims of Jewish false teachers. And as Paul is describing these victims, his attitude is different. In the beginning of chapter 3, he says, look out for the dogs, evil workers, mutilators. Nothing to do with them. But as he's describing these victims of their teaching, he says, I now tell you about them through tears. They're enemies of the cross of Christ. And one of the descriptions that he gives of them there is their minds are set on earthly things. It's poor people influenced by false teaching. They're consumed with rituals and Sabbaths, and celebrations. They're consumed with the physical act of circumcision. All these earthly things. And Paul says, their mind is not set on heavenly things. 
So Paul, through these opponents, will use all these negative examples to show us groups of people who have it all wrong. But Paul will also use good examples in the book. And I want to work through a few of these with you, too. Paul will use good examples in the book. And the first one I'm drawn to is a person of Jesus Christ. Of course, one of the best best things about studying Philippians is there's going to be a lot about Jesus in here. It's going to be good for us. But what does the example of Christ teach us? And of course, our minds are drawn to this key Christological passage in the center of the book, right? Philippians 2, 5 through 11. As I talk about it, you can be scanning it in your, in your pew there. You, you see that in verses 6 through 8, Paul describes Jesus as one who was in the form of God, yet kept stepping down, right? He kept descending to become a man. And then he <clears throat> humbled himself to the point of death. And then even a more excruciating form of death, he died on a cross. Jesus kept descending. He kept serving. It's met in Philippians 2 and verse 9 by the response of God the Father. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. God responds to the humble submission and sacrifice of Jesus the Son by exalting him, lifting him up. But what is this whole narrative of Christ's life to do for us? Look at verse 5. Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. It is to inspire us. It is to compel us as Christians to have a self-sacrificing mindset like Jesus. What does the example of Christ teach us? The right mindset. Later on in this same chapter, he pulls out the example of two other people, Timothy and Epaphroditus. Verses 19 through 24 about Timothy. We won't take the time to look at all of it, but look at verse 20, Philippians 2, 20. Paul says about Timothy, For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. Why is Timothy here? Well, it says Timothy's exceptional. Because he's not concerned about all of his own interests. He's concerned about the things of Jesus Christ. He's concerned for others. Or Epaphroditus, this elderly man who almost died in the journey from Philippi to Rome to bring that gift to Paul. Philippians 2, 25 through 30 talks about Epaphroditus. And notice verse 30. Again, we'll preach through all this, so... There'll be plenty of stuff to say about Epaphroditus, but look at verse 30. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what's lacking in your service to me. Epaphroditus is an older saint who did not decline or recline in retirement, but he pushed himself to the point of death. Risking his life for the work of Christ. Why are Timothy and Epaphroditus in this book? By this point, right, the answer is obvious, right? They have the right mindset. 
They have the right approach to life. That's why they're here. Uh, finally, there, there's another good example I need to hit quickly, and I wish I could spend more time on this, and I will later. It's the example of Paul himself. Why does Paul shed so much light on his own life and motivations in Philippians? Matter of fact, this was so intriguing to me a, a while ago. As I went through Philippians, I, I, I wanted to know how much of the book is about Paul himself. Okay, and I did my own little study. You, you, could, you could try to prove me wrong this week if you want. I noticed that there are 104 verses in Philippians. I think I'm pretty sure on that one. 104 verses in Philippians. But according to my count, 69 of those verses are about Paul himself. Okay, so about 65%. Or approximately two-thirds of this book is written about Paul. Now, what do you think about that? If I were to write, it's easier to critique me than Paul, right? (laughs) If I were to write a book and two-thirds of it was about myself, I mean, unless it was an autobiography, what would you think about me or my book? That guy's a little stuck on himself, right? But, of course, we can't think that about Paul the Apostle because the Holy Spirit leads him to do this. So... Why would the Holy Spirit lead Paul to write two-thirds of a book about himself? It's because he has the right mindset, if I ever get this working. He has the right mindset. Philippians 1.21. For to me, I love how he words that. For to me, this is like a personal testimony. For me, to live is Christ... And to die is gain. Philippians 3, verse 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. I think Paul there is describing his conversion experience on the road to Damascus. Those things I used to boast in, all those Jewish rites, uh, righteousness or forms of righteousness, all those things I made in exchange. All of that was loss, deficit. For Jesus. But then in verse 8, right after that, he continues. He says, indeed, I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I've suffered the loss of all things, and count them as dung, or rubbish, in order that I may gain Christ. In verse 8, between those two verses, in the historical narrative in verse 7 and verse 8, I think you've got approximately 23 years happens there. Verse 7 is when he's converted. Verse 8 is, now you have the reflection of a seasoned missionary church planter. He says, and now, let me just tell you, I count everything as loss. It's all dung. It's rubbish compared to the possibility of getting to know Jesus more. These are powerful passages in the book. Why is Paul here? He has the right mindset. As a matter of fact, every illustration and example in Philippians that Paul describes, I believe he's emphasizing the proper mindset. One that is in keeping with the gospel of Jesus Christ. One that seeks Christ fervently. One that endures afflictions for him patiently. And one that works for him zealously. As a matter of fact, and I'll just go briefly through these as I uh, click, what is joy in the midst of suffering? 
I think it's part of the right mindset. One commentator defined joy in Philippians this way. He says, joy is more than emotion. It's an overarching mindset. I really like that. It's an overarching mindset. It's part of the right mindset. And what is Paul's emphasis on gospel? Again, if, if we get there. What is Paul doing with his strong emphasis on the gospel in chapter 1? He's describing the right mindset. One that values the gospel. And so as we close, let me just briefly talk about the purpose of Philippians. The purpose of Philippians. What's all this teaching us and what do we leave here with today? Remember a great insight I I learned or heard one time when I was in a seminary class. Class was on counseling. And the professor gave us one insight that has really impacted uh, my ministry over the years. He says, one of the things you need to do when you're counseling with someone in your office or wherever, coffee shop, is... You need to stop and ask some questions. Okay, now sometimes that can be overdone, right? We all know about the counselor. Just ask questions, never gives us any help. But he had one question in particular he suggested that we ask. He said, when someone is describing their problems to you, they're kind of going through some situation, this person did this to me and then I did that. And He said, what you need to do is you need to stop and ask them a question. And this question was worth the price of the class. The question was, you need to stop and ask them, how did that make you feel? Or what did you think about the way that person treated you? Okay, so I took the class. I, I'm, I, I like, like one thing to work on you know, as a result of the sermon or the lecture or the whatever. So, okay, I'm going to try this. So I got back home to our church ministry. And I remember, it wasn't too long I, I was there, a, uh, a family came to me, a man and a woman came to me, and the man was describing a big problem in his church, or in his family. And he said, well, what happened is my wife did this, and then I did that. And before he got to the I did that, I stopped and I asked him, okay, she did that to you, she treated you that way, and how did that make you feel? Like, here, I'm going to try this. What did you think about the way she treated you? And by simply asking them, him that question, it, it showed him that he at least momentarily, even if it was just for a second or two, thought about what she was doing to him and then launched out at her and responded to her. And it showed him that he had these thoughts before he did these actions. And it seemed to work. It's like, man, I got this. One question. I'm a counselor with one question. So later on that, that night, uh, I had a situation with two of my kids. They'll remain nameless. And uh, my daughter, one of my daughters, had hit my son with a truck over the head. And uh, so I pulled her in the room. I thought, okay, I'm going to try this again. So she's describing it. So, you, you know, so this is what my son did to her. And then she's transitioning. You know, She's going to tell me what she did. And I stopped her. I said, okay, then what did you think about the way he treated you? Or how did you feel about that? I didn't, I didn't like it. So then what did you choose to do? I hit him. <laughs> I hit him. And it seemed to work again, at least for a few minutes. But God has used this question repeatedly in my life as well. And there it has not been so enjoyable. These questions are designed to cause us to pause and consider how we think and how our thinking affects our actions 
And I believe that that is the function of Philippians as well. Paul clearly reveals the importance of thinking and its impact upon our lives. And he does this throughout the book, but there's a key passage at the end. If you want to look in your Bible, it's Philippians 4, 8, and 9. I'm going to close with this. Philippians 4, 8, and 9. There's this connection between what we do and what we think. Philippians 4 and verse 8, Paul says, Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. Paul, in this, this climatic text, Paul says, you need to be concerned about what you're thinking about. And here are the sort of things... You you need to think about true things, honorable things, just things, pure things, lovely things, commendable things, excellent things. But then notice right after that, verse 9. And these texts, two verses are connected, and I'll show you that later. But in verse 9, he says, What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, and the King James says, do. Or as ESV says here, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. Paul is making a connection between thinking and doing. And this book is a passage, it's it's four chapters that are about our mind. Now we, as well, are too often distracted by many earthly things. By many earthly things that draw our attention away from Christ. Sometimes... We cultivate in our own private, we cultivate our own private, sin-filled, critical thoughts. We think that it's no big deal. So we scheme about how we'll get back at our parents because of the way they've treated us. Or we scheme about what we're going to do the next time we have an opportunity to respond to the person who was rude or cruel to us. Or we cultivate in our own minds, private minds, sin-filled, lustful thoughts. Failing to consider what Jesus said in Matthew 6... Jesus says, if we look on a woman with lustful intent, we've already committed adultery with her in our heart. We fail to consider those verses, and yet we cultivate in our own little private world sinful thoughts. We think it's no problem. What sinful thoughts have you cultivated this past week? And how can you bring them in line for the glory of God? See, we we must deal with our thoughts and win the battle for our minds. Because it is important to God. And our thoughts can be sin in and of themselves. And our thoughts will eventually lead and affect our actions. Paul's charge to the Philippians 
is a charge for us today. We need to think about the way we think. Let's pray together. Father, I know that this has been an overview of a book. But it's been your book, the epistle to the Philippian congregation. It's written several thousand years ago by the hand of the Apostle Paul for those believers, and he was challenging them to have the right mindset or approach to life and to be concerned with their thoughts. Lord, we do rejoice in the fact that there's no creature that's hidden from your sight, and all things are naked and exposed to the eyes of whom, with whom we have to do. You know and see all. And we're also thankful, Father, that the Word of God is quick and powerful. It is sharper than any two-edged sword. It pierces Uh, to the division of soul and spirit and of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of our heart. We're thankful that your word distinguishes our thoughts and helps us divide between the good and the bad. And like the psalmist David, we now come to you Asking that the meditations of our heart would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Lord, we come to you as sinful human beings who harbor all sorts of wrong thoughts. And we admit those to you this morning. And we ask for the strength and the help that can only be ours through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, may our meditations be acceptable in your sight. In Jesus' name, amen.